So good to see you all this morning. Love worshiping our Lord, huh? It's wonderful. I think we're going to do that for eternity. I can't just even imagine how, what a gift that is to be able to worship that way. Can you please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3? By the way, is there anybody here that needs a Bible? If you if raise your hand if you need the Bible or you don't have, you forgot your Bible or whatever this morning, please raise your hand and we'll have one of the ushers or elders bring you a Bible. Anybody? All right, one right here. That's awesome. Anybody else need one? One over here? Okay. One right over here. Good. Um, ah, it's so good to see you all and be with you this morning. You know, as we begin chapter 3, incredible, incredible passages for us this morning. It really is caught between two bookends, if I can say it that way. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 17 began the church as we know it on the day of Pentecost. And uh, really, obviously, when Christ comes back, that will end, well, the rapture technically will end the church age, but um, we know that Christ is coming for a millennial reign as well. And when we read our first verse here, I started thinking about those bookends. The bookends to our life, the bookends to our heritage as Christians. And just the fact that we are so close, we are in the last of the last days, and just so much of the world is unaware of that. We're going to read verse 1, we're going to pray first, and then I'd like us actually to go to Matthew chapter 16 a moment, because I just think the Lord is pressing on our hearts that we're not to be blind or ignorant to these days that we're living, to the signs of the times, if I can say it that way. So we all bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Father, we just thank you again for your holy word. We thank you that you've anointed it this morning and that you've, Lord, you've given us breath as we woke up, our eyes opened and our feet touch the ground, Lord. Blessed so much this morning by all the things you've allowed to already occur, the thoughts racing through our minds, the culmination of coming here and opening your word and being taught by your still small voice to your Holy Spirit. As these words leap off the page and right into our hearts forever, Lord, forever. God, your word is eternal and it'll never fade away. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, just have your way in us. Strip away the dross, the self. More of you, Lord Jesus, more and more of you. Ever increasing in our lives, Lord, surrendering. Mm. Lord, we're ready to hear what your spirit has to say. Speak to our hearts in these last days, Jesus. We pray this and ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. It's an imperative, but know this. Not I would kind of want to share something, maybe. 
But Pastor Paul, wearing his apostolic mantle, looks to Timothy, writes in this letter, Timothy, know this. Know that you know. Know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. This idea of the last days. Today, it's used often, and, and rightfully so, I believe. You know, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, I think so many people are walking around today, and by the way, the church included in that, unaware that we are truly in the last days. Jesus spoke about this. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, please. Matthew chapter 16. I thought it would be a nice place to begin this morning. Always the word of God in Jesus Christ. As we're airdropped into this passage here in chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the 70 men, they gather, um, not with the right heart, but nonetheless they gather to come to test Jesus. And when they come to gather and to test him like this, they want to know, you know, what are the signs? And they, they really want a sign from Jesus specifically. And Jesus is going to explain to them that he's already gave them a sign. I mean, I said to first, sorry, it was kind of funny. I thought about it as I was saying it. I said, you think about that. Jesus Christ, Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, standing right before you. Can you, oh, I think we can't, we want to imagine that, huh? I would say, can you imagine? We want to imagine that. Just, you know, the presence of our Lord, just right before us to touch him, to behold him, to embrace him. But he's standing right before them, and all they can think about is testing him to, to try to stump him. And, and they, they want a sign. And I'm thinking, the Immaculate Conception, what more of a sign do you need? Jesus is right there. That is the sign. Messiah, prophetically fulfilled before your eyes. But, but look at 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the, the sky is red. And threatening, hypocrites. Again, that word in the Greek means actor. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the, the signs of the times. Well, that's a pretty strong rebuke and correction for the religious leaders of that day, wasn't it? You can tell the weather. You know what's going on around you, the climate and all those things. But the most important thing, God standing in your presence, that you don't recognize. And not only that, but you don't recognize these begin the last days. You don't discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And you remember that in three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Likewise, the Son of Man. Think about how many times, three times specifically, we have recorded in our Gospels of where he spoke to his apostles and the disciples about his suffering, his death, and the resurrection, the fact that he would be in the grave three days in that tomb, three nights, just like Jonah, the sun and the, you know, the fish there, in the belly of the fish. And then he dropped the mic, no. And then he left them and departed. But wouldn't it have been fitting so? Because what more would we need to know 
then wow, Lord. It's almost fitting, let him have ears hear what the Spirit of God has to say. As we're living in these last days, it's really not any different. The Bible does speak of different ways in the Greek for last days. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Because after all, it could mean, you know, the last days is in the time Christ is physically going to come back, uh, terra firma, touch the earth, and that'll happen after the great tribulation, the millennial reign, where he'll come back and we'll come back with him. That's the last days. You know, sometimes it references that in scripture and coming. But also sometimes the scripture begins to be referenced when it starts to talk about the last days in the capacity of we are living in the last days and the, la and the last of the last days that way. And he talks about these deceptions in the last hours because I do believe we're living in the last of the last days. That's why I started with the bookend. In verse 18, he says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. He's already saying that there's tons of signs, tons of things we've already been given. And think about that since uh, the last 2,000 years. I mean, you have the likes of Hitler, who was an Antichrist or a type of Antichrist, and Stalin, and uh, just recent in our generation, uh, Saddam Hussein, and the likes of those men that have come on the scene. Now, it's important for us to remember that you know, Jesus Christ is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Uh, the Father is omniscient, the Holy Spirit. But Satan is not. Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel. Uh, he's immortal but not eternal. And we know that, and the scriptures bear witness to that. And why that's important is because this idea of what John brings out here in these antichrists, plural, not the definite article, the, the Antichrist, is that throughout the scene, there's been times where Satan has lifted up or raised up a man that if this was the last moment, that he would try again to persuade and conquer the earth, to, to, to disable worship from God, to, you know, to try to uh, reject and, and create a world that would reject Jesus Christ at his coming, second coming, that is. But he doesn't know when, so he raises these men up. You see these men on the scene at times, like a, like a Hitler and Saddam Hussein, who have a worldwide conquest on their heart. They want to be uh, God themselves, don't they? Uh, they don't honor a theocracy, you know? And we, living in these last days, we're seeing it happen before our very eyes as well, as we watch not only our beloved country but the hearts and minds of such a totalitarian state come into this country and begin to erect something that's counter to a theocracy and counter, counter to the word of God. It says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been from, of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of us, none of them were of us. That's super important because he talks about and illuminates the fact that there is wheat amongst the chaff. And we know in these last days it's becoming very, very evident, very, very easy. It's not, I, you know, I think 20 years ago, boy, it was, it was tough. 
But since the 1960s, and that's when most sociologists attribute the change and the things that have occurred since that time, we see that morality has begun to downward or has begun to spiral, spiral, spiral downward, if I can say it that way, okay? And from that spiraling downward, it's no coincidence that at that same time, that's when Bibles were removed from schools. That's when prayer was removed from schools and the public space. And what evolved is men and women worshiping self. I mean, after all, we find ourselves back in the depravity of judges where every man and woman's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're not yielding to the word of God. They're not yielding to the Bible because they don't even have the Bible, most of them. They're biblically illiterate. And dare I say that even some of the church today is biblically illiterate. And that's why he's given us his word. And we're going to read that. He, he's going to tell Timothy, Timothy, you stay right in the word of God. You must continue in these things, he's going to say. But as we continue on, he says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Okay? Now, just so we don't get too comfortable here, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Okay? Hebrews chapter 1, please, in your Bibles. And I look at verse 2. He tells us how he primarily speaks to us. You know, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we, we, he primarily spoke through the prophets. Last week, you might remember, I mentioned about this new apostolic reformation and this idea of raising up new apostles and all of this uh, heresy, uh, mysticism, emotionalism, contrary to the word of God. And here we see very clearly in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, he says, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Who's his son? Jesus whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself had purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The primary way we hear from God today it's through his word. It's through the reading of his word. It's not that he can't speak to us individually. He does, absolutely. But the primary place we meet with him is in the word of God. And there's never a word we're going to get through the Holy Spirit that would contradict the word of God. And I just think that's important. Turn also to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, please. 2 Peter, since we're already over that way. Also speaking of the last days and the times, if you will. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They begin to scoff. They begin to make fun. Jesus isn't coming. But when is he coming? They walk in their own lusts. Oh, boy. Today... You know, this country, the world, is so filled with self, so consumed with the lusts of this world. People are holding on so tight. You know, as I mentioned last week, 9% of the church, when I say the church, I mean Bible-believing 
people that attend church regularly, 9% of them read their Bibles every day. That's it. 9%. The other 91% of those that compromise the church are not reading the Word of God every day. And we wonder why the church is compromising as well today. Because it's not in the Word of God. It's into the wisdom of man. He says that in these last days, which I believe we're living, as I believe the scriptures just kind of made very clear for us, perilous times. Helipos in the Greek, that word helipos. It's significant in the way that it's used here. Um, it's speaking it's really used twice in Scripture. One, the other place it's used is Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And it's used to speak more of um, a fierceness. Perilous is like fierce times. But that's not how it's used here in the Greek. Halipos here, in the way it's broken out in context, it's actually speaking of troublesome, hard to bear, and dangerous times. And that's what we see today. As cities are being lit on fire, people are living and drawing closer to anarchy than they are the laws of the land. People are more interested in, in the Supreme Court's laws rather than God's statutes, commandments, and judgments. Friends, if we can just speak plain with each other this morning, I believe most of the church has forsaken their first love. They've forsaken their first love for another love. And that's the love of self. It's impregnated the church. But we don't need to fear. We don't need to be troubled by this. Because Jesus said the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. He will always have a remnant. There will always be those that love Jesus and his word and desire to follow after his commandments, statutes, and judgments. But he tells us that in these last days, the days that we're living, perilous times are going to come. Troublesome, hard to bear, dangerous. We need to prepare our hearts here as believers, as Christians. We need to prepare our hearts for these days. You need, we need to honor what the scriptures are teaching us. He goes on to describe what it'll be like. And I don't think we can get through the first one without going, we're there. Look with me at verse 2. For men will be lovers of themselves. <laughs> Isn't that the foundation of sin? Self-love. It's not something that's got to be taught. I mean, since 2000, if you went to a psychologist or a therapist, you just need to love yourself more. Listen, I've never need anybody to tell me to love me. Boy, oh boy, I love myself quite a bit. Every morning I can wake up and with self-thought, self-motivation what I think I need, what all these things, oh, I don't need any, I'm depraved, right? The Bible tells me I'm depraved. I need Jesus Christ. I need his thoughts, his mind. I don't need mine. He says they're going to be lovers of themselves. Again, I believe this is the foundation of sin, which everything else we're going to read here builds off of. Lovers of money. I mean, just think about that. Today's culture, right? So self-serving, self-love, consumed by knowledge. And yet, what are we doing with it? Is knowledge actually bettering society and humanity as a whole? 
Because again, if you look at most of the theologists today, they would say that the morality, uh, many of them are not believers, so take, they would take God out of the picture and they would use the term morality. They would say that morality has been downward spiraling since the 60s. So no one doubts that. I mean, the care and love for a neighbor or somebody else that, you know, even an unbeliever understands that's proper behavior to care about someone else, to think of them and just not think of self. He says, but this is what happens when the foundation of sin is planted in being a lover of self. They begin to have a love of money and greed and wealth because after all, it's only about them. And there's never enough of it for them. More and more and more. And from there, boasters, right? You look at Romans chapter 130 for that, if you'd like. You could look at proud uh, men that become proud. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Blasphemers. You know, we use that term today, and unfortunately, we use it loosely. We don't use it according to the biblical context of how it's laid out. I'd just spend a few moments with this this morning because this is serious business, blasphemy. Blasphemy is to speak with contempt about God or to be defiantly reverent. Blasphemy is verbal or written. It's a reproach of God's name, his character, his work, and his attributes. Blasphemy was a serious crime under the Mosaic law. Israelites were taught to worship and obey God. In Leviticus, and you can turn there if you'd like, Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 16 there was a man who blasphemed the name of God. The man in Leviticus who blasphemed the name of God, do you know what happened to him? He was stoned to death. It was a capital punishment, a capital crime. It was serious business. Isaiah chapter 36 tells us the story of Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He was the king of Assyria. And you might remember he attempted to try to demoralize Israel. He was, he was trying to talk a big game, uh, get into their head. And in so doing, he actually began to attack our God, the God of the Israelites. Uh, Jehovah, Jehovah there. He began to talk, uh, you know, say these things like, my God's better than your God, your God can't protect you. Let me be specific. Isaiah chapter 36, verse 20 said, who of all gods of these countries has been able to save their lands from me? That's, this is a man who has no fear of God, okay? That's pretty bold and brash. Who has been able to keep, in other words, I'm unstoppable and so is my God. That's what this man uh, this king of Assyria was saying, uh, verse 20, how can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? You remember Nebuchadnezzar did something very similar. Do you remember that? Uh, not so much attacking them, but he's standing on the portico. He's out looking, and he turns around and says, God, look at all that I've done. And who did that work? God allowed those things. But he began to take credit, and then he found himself mad, acting as an animal for some seven years to remind him just who Jesus Christ is before we get and think of ourselves more highly than we ought. I'm, I'm thankful for those, those warnings. Well, he goes on in chapter 37 of Isaiah, verses 36 and 37. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when, Pete, when the people rose the next morning, there were all the dead bodies 
So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. You know what he did? He cut and run. He went, what is this? He declared that so openly as blasphemy. And God responded the next day and said, I'll show you what the one true God can do. 185,000 people wake up and see all of these dead men and women around them. And so he returns to Nineveh and he stays there. Now, lest we think that's where it ends, Isaiah chapter 37, verse 38 tells us that later, Sennacherib was murdered in the temple of his god, uh, Nisraj, making it very clear that his god, a god made with hands, could never stand up to the one true god that created everything, the heavens and the earth. You see, followers of God are, are to be responsible. They are responsible in, in regards to their behavior, um, not just with the words, but do we do things, our actions? Can we incite other people to actually blaspheme God? You see, we read some, some of this, and I think it's important to look at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Paul actually goes and rebukes those who claim to be saved through the law apart from Christ. And yet they're still living in sin. He actually uses Isaiah 52, which we were just in Isaiah, uh, verse 5, and he tells them, God's name is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. He says that specifically in verse 24. Do you see what Paul did? He connected it for us so that we could uh, understand that it wasn't just the words like, like we had read about the, the man that, the, that blasphemed God. It wasn't just Sennacherib with the, his words and the way that he spoke, but even the very actions of someone you know, claiming uh, and deceiving people and taking them away from God, being legalistic, a law, or Jesus plus something, even that, according to Scripture, in Romans chapter 2, think of some of our denominations there that have added things, worship of Mary, other things like fill in the blank, okay, because I don't want to pick on any one denomination. There's plenty of that going on in the church. And what does it become? He says here, he says that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of what you've done and the way you act, not just your speech pattern, but your actual behavior, your thoughts, your actions, they can blaspheme God as well. Not just what you say, but also what you do. How about 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20? We were just there a few weeks ago. Paul explains that he had given uh, two false prophets, you might, or teachers is what scripture actually calls it, but uh, two men who had um, been given over to Satan. He gave them over to Satan. Do you know what he called them? He called them blasphemers, right? He says, because they, they let them be given over to Satan that they be taught not to blaspheme God. What were they doing? These were men that were, uh, by all intents, Christians. They're in the church of Ephesus. They had been there. Paul's now in a dungeon. He's writing back to Timothy, who's pastoring that church. So it's clearly three, four, five, six, maybe seven years later. So this is not somebody that just got saved yesterday. But these men raise up and they say, you know what? There's another doctrine I want to tell you about. This is a really cool thing happened to me last night. I want to tell you about mysticism or I want to tell you about this or I want to tell you about Jesus plus something. Or, oh, by the way, did you know you have to do this? Or we got to worship on this day of the week. Or, by the way, did you know you can't eat meat? Or you, you got to have vegetables only? Or you, you get the point. Legalism. All these things coming in. Oh, if you're not circumcised. Christ. 
And Paul rebukes them. And he rebukes them in a way that says, your actions are leading others to blaspheme the name of God. You are blasphemers, is what he said. And he was speaking to the church, to these men that were believing false doctrines. So I think it's very important today that we understand that peddling any false doctrine and leading God's people astray is a form of what? Blasphemy. We need to understand that because we will be held accountable to that. And that's biblically the definition of it. It's, a, it, it, it's by definition, it's both deliberate and it's direct. And that's why I believe a true believer in Christ cannot do this. A true believer in Christ cannot blaspheme Jesus, the name of God, through actions, deeds, or thoughts. But I will say this, that I believe we need to be careful to reflect God's holiness. Never misrepresent his glory or his authority or the very character of God. Let's continue in here. Blasphemers, right? Disobedient to parents, the very next breakdown. What does that speak of? The breakdown of the family, where teens or young people begin to tell their parents how things should be. Now, we all, I, I think we all were guilty of this to some extent. I, in first service, I had someone clearly adamant, no, I wasn't. And I was thinking, wow, praise the Lord, you're the one. Because I know for sure I was disobedient in this regard. You know, I, I clearly didn't honor my parents. I, d I didn't do that, right? I, I didn't honor that. Now, Certainly when we get married, we leave and cleave, and that becomes our family. And then, obviously, there's the pastor and the home and the wife and, and what have you there. But it never says we're to stop honoring them. We just don't maybe necessarily responsible to obey them every moment because now we have our family that we're doing. But never should we stop honoring our parents. But when you have a breakdown of the family from this, you know what comes from this? Unthankfulness. It's what follows right after. Why? Because there becomes this aspect in our hearts where we become unthankful, almost entitled. Now, again, think of the condition of the world today, the climate, even the church. How many young people come in and, well, I'm not going to church on Wednesday, or I'm not going to, I'm sorry, what? Or, or what are they putting before the word of God? You see, light and darkness are mutually exclusive. It was a conference last week, a pastor's conference, and I heard uh, my pastor's dad say it beautifully because it's in Scripture. He said, in the beginning of the Bible, it doesn't say, and God created the heavens and the earth. He brought light, and by the way, love was created before any of these things. Now, I know love motivated all of this, but light was what was brought. Why? To cast out the darkness. Real love is light casting out darkness, and then love can enter in. But today, so many are saying in the church, well, if we really love people, that means that's sort of code for compromise. We want to love people that are habitually sinning or continuing to live a false narrative that's not lining up to scripture and they call themselves Christians. You know, and God never compromised with that. He never played with that. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. It, because what comes from that is when you begin to compromise that, then enters an entitlement because you start to think maybe, maybe the way I think about something is better than the way God thinks about it. Or, or maybe 
while I'm, I'm, I'm just engaging in sexual morality, I mean, it's not, I, I'm just, I'm not murdering someone. No. It doesn't work that way. There's not like a grading scale where God goes, okay, this sin is pretty, this is, sin is sin. Sin separates us from God. It destroys our right relationship with him, whatever it is. I mean, that's simply biblical. There's nothing we can say other than what God has already said. But the idea of being unthankful enters in when we, we begin to, in our hearts, turn around and just take for granted. Even, even in the church, sometimes I know in, in the office, I've, it, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes somebody can come in and they can speak to somebody in the office in a very demanding way. You'll do this. I'm sorry, excuse me? You know, they, they, will, they will never say it to me that way, but the, maybe they'll say it to one of my staff or somebody. That's, and I thought, well, that's not becoming a Christian. Why would anybody ever speak to a son or daughter a brother or sister in Christ that way. Sometimes I think we forget. We put on Christ, which means we took off the old man. We live it out. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know what I mean? It doesn't, it's not something we exchange. Well, I'll put on Christ at this moment. I'm going to put on the man when I get out of here. Or when I go in the church office, just because I'm not in the sanctuary, I'm going to, I'm going to put on the man there. I need to get things done. No, no, no. Unholy. The idea here, unloving, right? This means without family love. Unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control. What is without self-control? Sex, drugs, alcohol, workaholic, pornography, right? The idea that we move forward without gentleness. Because again, when you have entitlement, or you ha are unthankful for all that God has done for you or I, naturally we arrive at that place where we think we, we get a say. I stand up here fully acknowledging my opinion doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. God's never asked me my opinion. Thank you, Jesus. I don't want, he doesn't want my opinion. I, you don't want my opinion. I'm, I'm filthy rags. That's not a false sense of humility. I believe that with everything that I am. I believe that and know that. But meekness today? You know, you, you, you think about some of the things and these descriptions. Uh, compare and contrast them to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is the poor in spirit? Right? Think about that in today's idea. We had someone at corporate prayer just ask that beautiful question recently. We do a Q&A every once in a while at corporate prayer, and it was a beautiful, beautiful question. What is the poor in spirit? Can you all answer that? That idea that our spirit desires that uniqueness and closeness with Jesus Christ, longs for it, but because of the evil and the sin of the world, it's constantly bombarding us and grieving our spirit, grieving the spirit of God. You know, they get a reward, don't they? Those, that, you and I, that long for that. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's God. Contrast that from somebody that's using, <laughs> lacking self-control. They just blow through everything. There's no gentleness there. Brutal, despisers of good. You can go back to Romans 1 and see all that comes from that. Traitors, because after all, it's about self and Headstrong, they go hand in hand, right? Haughty, lovers of pleasure. 
So many in the church today, and I, I'm, I, this is written to the church. Please understand that. It was written to Timothy, a pastor within the church, actually, specifically speaking. This wasn't being written to the world. He was writing this in light of the church, and we are to come out of the world. We're not to look like any of these things after Christ. How many of us are more concerned with the pleasures, the vacations, the multiple vacations? I'm not saying there's anything wrong going on vacation. That's nice. Do that. Praise the Lord, right? Every once in a while, you need to, you need to, you need to shift it down and spend time with Jesus and the Lord, just you and him away from everything else. That's wonderful. But how many people today, you know, you know, four or five vacations, six, whatever it looks like, all these other things they're caught up in. You know, family can be that. All these other things can come and take that place that only Jesus Christ belongs in your life. And only, the only person that can discuss that with you is Jesus. No man can judge that. No, no man has the right to judge that. But to seek after the pleasures, please understand that I didn't contrast that that way. The scripture does because he says, rather than the lovers of God, he's contrasting it between the pleasures of life or being intentional after God. You see, that's why I fear for so much of the church today, because when the rapture does happen, how many, because God knows all of our thoughts, our hearts, our desires, how many are going to be thinking, I want to hold on to this life and everything that's in it, and I'd rather be here now in all of this than be with my beloved Jesus? I hope there's no one in here saying that this morning. I hope there's no one saying that this morning, because... This world is so caught up in pleasure and so much of the church is caught up in pleasures rather than the lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, you know what that is speaking, but denying its power. Uh, look, this is very simple. Uh, we just happen to be in there on Wednesday. Again, I, I want to see all of you come out on Wednesday. We're reading these passages. We need to be under the word of God. Unless there's some extenuating circumstance, you all should be here on Wednesdays. You need to be under the whole counsel of God, not just Sundays where we're getting the New Testament, but we need to be under the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 says these things in the Old they're an example for us. We need to be under the Word of God constantly, consistently, because it's renewing and changing and developing our hearts. It's protecting us from the very list we're reading about. But we were just there this Wednesday when we read about Jeroboam. Jeroboam, out of insecurity and fears, he turned around and he erected a religious system based on a calf again. Not that we haven't seen that before back in Genesis. You know, the calf representing the world's worship or worship from the world. And what does he do? He was called by God. It wasn't a man. He was called by God. He was told to do these things. But he took it into his own hands. And instead of doing it God's way, he thought, well, I don't want you know, the ten tribes, because Jeroboam's going to be, you know, the king of the ten tribes, and then the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, okay, in the southern area there in Judah, in Jerusalem. He says, you know what, I don't want them going back to Jerusalem, because I'm afraid by making their way back, they're going to join Rehoboam. And if they join Rehoboam, what's going to happen? Then they're going to stop coming back, and, you know, they're going to come after me, or they're going to join. It's insecurity, fear, and all that. So he says, don't go down there and worship. Wait a minute. God did call Jeroboam, didn't he? But did God tell him how he was to change worship or how he was supposed to worship? God had declared how he's to be worshiped, hadn't he? Spent a lot of time in Leviticus and Numbers, and he laid out a lot on how God wanted to be worshiped under the Old Testament, right? We can read it even today. We should be reading it as a reminder. 
But that's exactly what's happening today. People are trying to worship God under their terms. That grieves God's heart. Do you, do we, are we aware of that? That actually grieves God's heart. It's actually sin. I point this out because he says it's a form of godliness, but it's denying its power. Because there's power in the name and the word of God. And he makes it very clear. He says, for such people, he says, turn away, get away, get out of there. It's really the idea of power is authority. It's, it's outside of God's authority. God has declared through his authority how we are to be worshipers. How we're to live our life, his commandments, statutes, and judgment. We're not saved by our works, but we are called to be obedient and obey Jesus Christ. He says, for of these sort are those who creep in households. Now he starts to give us more of the technique of such people, right? And he's going to call out one particular example here. And again, I hope this is so relevant to us today in some, house, in some houses still, some, some homes still. For of this sort, those who creep into households and make captives, gullible women, loaded down with sin, led away by various lusts. And you know, what is he saying there? Let me make it simple for you. What he's saying is that you allow the world's sin to come into your home. And because it's a safe environment where your guard might be slightly down in your home, these things on the TV, these things on the radio, these things, they come in and they, they find gullible people, people that are quickly, easily persuaded to believe something else or to subscribe to all ways lead to Jesus, pluralism, or, or any of the other lies out there. We can do whatever we want when we're saved because grace is more than enough. Paul dealt with that already in Scripture. What, do we sin? So that grace abounds more? Certainly not. Things are serious, friends. He goes on to say that they creep into households. Isn't that how it comes in? It's never deliberate. You don't, it's not like, you know, I remember back in the, when I was growing up, they started, you know, making these Hollywood movies where, you know, the devil would come in and they put him in like some red cow with a pitchfork and, a, you know, and it was like, you know, that, you understand that's, Clearly, I, th I don't think I have to tell anybody here. You read your Bibles. You know, obviously, that's not biblical. He, was, he was actually appears as an angel of light. He doesn't come in in full disclosure of who he is. He appears as an angel of light. You actually think there's something good that you're doing. You don't realize that you have been lied to by a deceiving spirit. Hence why you're being tricked and or gullible, right? It's not smack right in the face obvious, that's what he's talking about. Your guard's down. You're in your home. He's speaking of women loaded down with sins because, after all, I mean, I, I remember growing up in the house sometimes, you know, born saved in my house, and I remember, you know, the, the soap opera thing was, you know, some of you probably still watch. I hope you don't. You turn, those, turn that off. You know, it, portraying a life, you know, with all this romanticism and all this, you know, uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a godly marriage and, and you know, one man, one woman, you know, being that way romantic, but I mean all the other things that you see in those make-believe, you know, fairy tales there, and people got caught up into that, and they started, my marriage isn't good, you know, and then, and then, and then we moved into the reality TV, right, in the 80s and 90s, you got guys like Jerry Springer out there, people are coming out banging chairs and knocking each other out, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, my marriage is really good compared to all these people, because you're seeing this nonsense, and it's like, what is going on? 
And then now in our generation here in 2021, and really I think probably started in 2012, 13, we started having housewives, right? The show and whether it's housewives of, I don't even know because I've never watched it, but I don't know, Beverly Hills or Alabama or Colorado or wherever they are. Who knows? There might be housewives of Harrisburg and I don't even know about it. But it's this whole life of what's going on and these women, they, and all they do is fight and they're patty with you. And, 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 and worse yet, they introduce sexual morality. You know what? I started having an affair with this guy on my street and it's really made my marriage better. What? You've corrupted that thought and mind of that woman to think that this is a, or a man, either one, to think this is something that God would have you to do and that somehow it's going to make your marriage better. No, it's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to tear your marriage apart. Well, it's, you know, 60% of everybody, you know, looks at pornography today. Certainly that can't involve my marriage. It absolutely does. Who is your Jesus? He comes into the house. Jesus comes in to save. The devil comes in to destroy. And he even says it here, led away by various lusts. Do you see that? Underline that in your Bible. Uh, uh, by various deception, you know, de deception, you know, comfort or status today. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Oh my, if that doesn't mark the humanist movement today. I want you to think about our universities, our, our, our institutions of learning, our public schools, our, even some of our private schools today. Reading but not ever allowing the word to change hearts. To think that there's so much knowledge there, and yet their own knowledge betrays them and displays them as fools. Do you realize that? It's so obvious, except to them. And they think they're the minority, but they're not. Do you know what the definition of wisdom is? The appropriate application of knowledge. The appropriate application of knowledge. I just ask a simple question, with all the knowledge we have after all these thousands of years, with all the technology, with all of the things that we've been able to do, go to the moon and, you know, or, you know, all these things. Since 1960, again, I draw you to a, a world sociologist view, not a Christian view. I draw you to the world's depiction of this. What does the data say? That unbelievers today and even they would suggest some of the church is living a less moral life than they did in 1960. This hasn't made us better. Our quest for knowledge hasn't made us better humans. It's puffed us up. It's caused us to turn on each other. It's introduced pride and arrogance. You know, in some of these institutions you walk in, they worship some of these men and women that teach these theories. The knowledge of the truth. That's why you're all here this morning. That's why I'm here. That's the knowledge of truth. It's right in front of us. You're going to seek after something. You're going to give your life to something and someone. Let's just call it what it is. Let's just expose the devil for what it is. 
Either it's the will of man or Jesus. You're going to either worship self. Remember, that's how we started here. Remember back up in uh, uh, verse 2 there? For men will be lovers of themselves. It's the foundation of all sin. Or you're going to worship Jesus and the truth, because there is no other truth apart from Jesus and his word. Now, as Yanes and Yambres, or as we would say, Janus and Jambres, rested, or resisted, excuse me, Moses, so do these also resist the truth. He actually explains what's happening here. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. The idea here, and just to understand where this comes from, Paul is letting us know, but it's really interesting how Paul brings this out. Do you remember back in Exodus chapter 7? You had the plagues. Do you remember what first happened? You know, God came to Moses and said, you're going to be my mouthpiece. I'm going to send you back to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember that? And Jesus, you know, sent Moses back and he encounters these magicians. Well, we know them as Yanes and Yambres, as scripture tells us. Under Jewish tradition, they've always kept these two names and knew that. But Paul actually confirms it for us in Scripture. These actually were their names of these two uh, G- Egyptian magicians. You remember Aaron threw his staff down, right, in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake? Then Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers. The Egyptian magicians also, uh, magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. It's demonic. They did it by demons. But it was supernatural, wasn't it? Both were supernatural. One was of the Lord. He took what Moses already had, his staff. Did you ever catch that, by the way? When Moses was called, he didn't give him something he didn't already have. God already equipped him. God just was putting it use now. Moses was putting it use to the ministry, not just the sheep in the, you know, in the wilderness there. His father Jethro's sheep. But what happens next? They do the same thing, right? Each one then threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But then what happened? Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, right? Verses 10 and 12, that's important. Later, the musicians and sorcerers, they try to duplicate what happens again because God turns the water into blood. Remember that? Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. And then he even produces frogs. And again, they can duplicate these things until they get further in the plagues. And it's interesting, you might even want to turn there right now, chapter 8, verse 19 of Exodus. Very, very important. What we're going to see in these last days, because that is the context we're talking about, supernatural uh, things. Some of the Lord, some done by Satan. The point is we have to test every spirit. Because there's lying, deceiving spirit. We have to test all of these spirits. Even the spirits that we think are from the Lord that come into our mind. Because many of them create division or destroy us or move us away from God. A lot of times you'll notice because it's an attack on authority or you'll attack on all these other things in our lives to not look at the one true God and, and it's drawing us to something else. And next thing you know, we're consumed by it and think we're so right. When <laughs> I know from experience I'm wrong. I'm wrong. But look what he does. He, he's unable to duplicate the other plagues. Chapter 8, verse 19. You see, I think that confirms for us a very important lesson, that while Satan can do these works, I mean, they are supernatural. It's not, it's not a parlor trick. The reality is God is still sovereign and in control. And even Satan, because he's a created being, can't do what an eternal God can do. And we serve an eternal God 
who has saved us from our sin, redeemed us to our Father in heaven, and we will spend eternity because God says so. Because God says so, and we believe. That's all there is to it. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul, you know, Paul here confirms the traditional names and sorcerers who challenged Moses. Paul's intention was to teach us that the wickedness of these men, Janus or Jambres, right, as presented in Torah, is an illustration of widespread active rejection of the truth in the last days. And that's what's being brought out for, for us right now. It's satanic and demonic. And so many people are believing this because they actually think they know more than God. And they don't even recognize it. And it's really bad. Like, when you see it happen, you know, I don't know about you, but my heart grieves. I, I cry often when I see someone that is so puffed up and caught up in their own knowledge, and they can't even see it. It's, it's, it's grieving to the heart. They resist the truth. Men, right, of corrupt minds. It tells us who they are. Disapprove concerning the faith. But they will progress no further than their folly. He, you see what God calls it? He calls it folly. Will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Exodus 8.18 makes that very clear. Because in these last days we see what's happening. Corrupt minds disapproved. And they progress no further with their folly. God restrains that while we're here. And then once this church age, the restraining will be removed. Now, he goes on. But you have carefully followed... My doctrine, that is the teaching, the manner of life, again, more is caught than taught, the purpose, in other words, God's direction for your life and purpose for your life, faith, long-suffering, love. He's, you know, we read the list earlier, now he's comparing and contrasting that. The perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch. In other words, we're not spared as Christians. There is suffering, and we're... we're we, we should not be surprised by that. What happened to uh, Paul at Antioch, Acts chapter 13, verse um, 50? Do you remember? He was actually kicked out of the city. But it didn't stop there. What do we read? At Iconium, right? What happened there? There he was stoned, but not to death. And then, and that's Acts um, chapter 14, verse 5. Then, Lyestra, do you remember what happened there? That's Acts chapter 14, verse 19. He actually was stoned to death, to the point of where they thought he was dead. They drag his dead body outside of the city Everybody's coming up thinking this guy's dead, and then the Lord resuscitates this man. Notice I didn't say resurrect, resuscitate, two different things. He resuscitates this man. He goes on to say, this is what happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord delivered me all. Remember, delivered me from all of them. He's basically sitting in this dungeon going, I know my God's sovereign, and if I'm here, it's because God wants me to be here. And I'm okay with that, because God has a plan. He has a purpose, whatever that looks like, no matter how bad the suffering or the difficulty is. He even goes into verse 12, and this is very important. Please underline this in your scripture. We need to pay attention here. Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a required course. Now, before I go any further, I'd like you to look at these two screens. Kevin, I asked to pull these up for me. Some of you probably heard about a Canadian pastor. Uh, recently that was arrested. There was also another pastor in Cuba that's imprisoned for his faith, and, and that's what happens. Communist governments don't like pastors. Why? Because they teach there's a God, and they teach that you're to worship that God, which means you're not to worship the communist dictator or the man, and that's a problem from them. 
That's why soon and already, as we're seeing in Canada, that very quickly, as it's gone in the past, the communist or socialist movement uses the church for a moment, just like the Antichrist is going to in the end times, and then eventually turns on them and consumes them. Why? Because he used them to propel a social gospel to get their endeavors done. And then after that's complete, then what do they turn around and do? Then they turn and say, you're deflecting people from following me. Remember, it was Nero worship. It was emperor worship. It wasn't Christ worship for them. They weren't like, oh, it's okay. No, no, they were killing Christians in the first century. Friends, we've just gone back there. We're, we're, we're right back there. Now, I understand we don't have, uh, you know, 1,000, 2,000 people right now at the uh, throne of a president, uh, you know, being set on fire. I understand it's not exactly the same. But I wanted to share this with you because here's a man who was in Canada. And I'm going to talk about why he was there. Uh, certainly, he's native um, from, he's from Polish background. And he uh, grew up in a communist country. And he described basically when he was in Canada um, some of the policies that the Canadian government was implementing, uh, forced uh, vaccination, things like that, or, or uh, masks or not, you know, not giving choice, all those kind of things, right? And again, whatever he chooses between you and the Lord. But the point is, and what he was making here, is people came in and he, he, police officers came in when he was having service, which you do understand there's no other time in history where services were not allowed to be conducted during uh, a time of uh, mass need, like a pandemic or anything, or Spanish flu or anything like that, because the church was used to go out and bring food to the people that had need because they weren't congregating. So they would go out and bring them, you know, here, I'm going to take care of you, or even if they could, always. It's always the way it's been done. I went back and looked historically. I couldn't find a time in any other country either where they, until you saw a communist regime shut things down or kill, just mass kill, mass concentration camps. But... What they ended up doing here with this man is they came in and he said, you're acting like Nazis. That's what he declared. And so he, he shouted them down, so to speak. They left and afterwards they came back and gave him a $19,000 fine and, you know, all these other things and basically said, we're going to arrest you. So he went to court, he hired an attorney, did the whole thing. Well, he was asked to come to speak. As a matter of fact, we almost had him at our conference last week. But we, he actually came to the Americas. He came here for four months. And he was traveling around and he was talking about these things. He's saying, hey, look, when I grew up in Poland, these are the things that I was seeing. And for you in America, you may not be aware of it, but this is where you're at right now on the timeline. You're there. This isn't a matter of like, it's not there. You're already there. Like, you're there. You're entered in. This is it. Okay, this is from a man. Again, I, I'm not from a communist country. I don't know what that's like. But, but this man was, and he's speaking that from his personal experiences. And so he was here for four months, and then he proceeded to head back home. He called to head to his attorney and said, hey, I want to ask you a question. Are there any warrants out for my arrest? Because if there are, I'll just simply go, my, go and see my wife, give my kid a kiss, and then I'll go turn myself in, and I'll, you know, I'll serve the night in jail or whatever they do, and then I'll pay the fee. I mean, that's okay. I, I, I understand the law. I'm, I'm willing to do that. The attorney says, no, as it's declared right now, there's no warrants for your arrest. He lands on the tarmac. Do you see the picture? The, the plane? This is just like last week or, or, or what have you. He lands on the tarmac. The police come out, grab him, treat him like a terrorist. I want you to see that. They're treating a pastor in Canada, which I grew up in Rochester, New York, is only an hour and a half from me. I could make it to the Niagara Falls border in about an hour and a half to two hours from Rochester, New York, where I'm from. I spent many a summers in Canada and going over there. I spent time in field trips in school. Would go over to Canada all the time, played hockey. Very familiar with Canada. Nothing like this could I ever imagine 
with come to Canada. Now, I do understand, as you do, that Canada is very entrenched with what's going on in China, right? We know that. Um, the they're not hiding it. The parliament has agreed with many of the similar socialist or communist endeavors. And so we, we Canada's pretty communist right now. I don't know how else to say it, pretty socialist. And so not shocking, and not shocking also, as I've said before, is that you got how many troops from China sitting on the Canadian border at any one point able to enter the United States of America. And there's a very good agreement they have there. Very good agreement. So this man turns around, he lands, and uh, they arrest him. They don't even allow him to see his wife, his kids. They grab his luggage, go through his computer as though he's a terrorist, as though he's committed some act of treason or crime against the Canadian government or the civilization in Canada that way, the people, the citizens. Because he did what? He came to America. And he said, be aware, America. This is coming near you. This is already here. And by the way, pastors, be aware. Because what they're doing to me in Canada right now, what they're doing to my, my brother in Cuba right now, what they've been doing in Venezuela and in the Middle East and all around the world, it's coming to you, pastors in America. Be prepared. Be prepared. Don't be shocked when you're arrested or dragged out. Just make sure you have another guy that's going to stand up and come into the pulpit after you and can do what? Continue to read the Word of God. And that's what we talk to our guys around here. That happens. I come out. Great. Somebody else will come up. They'll finish reading. We will get through the Word. Unless, you know, even if they arrest all you, we're going to have an awesome prison ministry. <laughs> now, there's four things here in these articles, right? I just want to read, a Canadian pastor who kicked Nazi cops out of church arrested again, right? Just one of the articles. Controversial preacher arrested on Cal Calgary tarmac for warrants after U.S. anti-vax speaking tours. I, need I remind everybody to say, look, you want to be vaxxed? You don't want to be vaxxed. That's between you and the Lord. Again, nobody should... That's between you and Jesus. That really is between you and Jesus. That should be said from the pulpit. But what I will say to you right now, and very, very clearly, is that never have we seen this two years ago. If I didn't want to get a flu shot, I didn't get a flu shot. I wasn't arrested because I didn't get a flu shot. I wasn't turning around and arrested because I said, hey, pray about if you want to get your flu shot. Controversial preacher arrested on Calvary Tarpment for warrants after U.S. anti-vax speaking tour. In other words, he was saying, you got to do what the Lord shows you. That was one of the warrants that they issued against him, and they wasn't even in Canada at the time. Now, here's another one. It just shows you how messed up it is. Canadian MAGA. You know what MAGA is. Make American great again. What does Trump have to do with Canada? The man's not even in office right now. What are we doing? Arrested as he returns home after spreading COVID lies in the U.S. Canadian pastor said Soviet-style tyranny is drawing eerily close after another arrest. He says, if they came for me, be sure of it. They're coming for you as well. Pastor warned Americans. Friends, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul's swan song. It doesn't get any realer than this. The only thing it's going to get more real is when that happens here. Please be prayed up. He says, you have carefully followed my manner of doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose of faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch, Iconia, and Lystra, again, prison. What persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm going to look at you here this morning. Settle this in your heart. You're a follower of Christ. You're not a follower of the world. Settle this in your heart. Whatever happens, whatever may come, God is allowing it. 
We know that judgment is coming to this country. This country is ripe for judgment. We must follow the word of God. We must follow Jesus Christ. We will never deny the one true God. Never, no matter what they do. Please settle this in your heart today. Settle this in your heart this morning. But evil men and imposters, those that even pretend, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, but you must continue. Now, I love this, verse 14. This is the key verse in this section of the letter where everything has been leading to. He's going to tell us here three things. The first thing and most important is what do you do about what you just heard this morning? No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, what do you do? The first and most important thing is you abide in Christ you abide in Jesus. Do you know that so many other parts of the world, other countries, they've settled this. They've, they've settled this. America's just catching up. Abide in Christ. In other words, believe, do, and then continue, right? Continually, he's going to talk about following the word of God and what have you. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. We've all been assured. Knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise, not knowledgeable, wise for salvation, most important, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Don't ever forsake the word of God. That's why I'm saying you all need to be at Wednesdays. No more. No more of this, well, I got other important things. Get your butt to Wednesdays. I love you, and that's just me saying, I don't mean literally get your butt. That's me just loving you as a pastor. As a get, your, get, get here for Wednesdays. This is important. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us these Old Testament, these words, the word of God is an example for us today as, we're being living, as it's being lived out. 1 Corinthians 10 tells the New Covenant, New Testament church that. You need the whole counsel of God. He goes on to say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's not a man's idea or a man's wisdom. No, it's God breathed. You know, I think back to Psalm 138, verse two. I lift the word of God higher than my very name, he says. 9% of church going, Bible believing, men and women read their Bible every day. Even less attend midweek services. Friends, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, that's for conviction, for correction, that's obviously to teach us the importance of life and character, which is what 2 Timothy 3 is all about. For instruction, right? And what is that about? Increasing in virtue, right? In righteousness, what is that? That's right living. That the man of God may be complete. That word in the Greek means perfect, but not perfect the way you and I think, like I'm perfect, but it means fully equipped. Like as if you were coming in and you were loading up to bear and then you're heading out. That's exactly what happens when you come into to service on Sundays and Wednesdays. You are equipped and then you go back out and you're ready. Whatever the Lord brings, you're ready because the, the grace of Christ is with, is with you for whatever good work. And that's exactly what he says. They may be clear throughout every good uh, work. And that, the idea behind that is every deed, every activity, under every undertaking of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to ask Pastor Steve and the musicians to come forward. You know, we're, we're going to celebrate communion. Our suffering servant, Jesus Christ.
who went to the cross for you and I. And just think, we get the blessing to partake of this together. Man, I'll tell you, there's not a greater time to be alive, to be a young person right now, to be the light in a dark world. Amen? Praise God. What a good word from Paul to Timothy, huh? Especially in these, in these days. You'll find your communion cups in the chair in front of you or in the seat um, that you're sitting in. If you don't happen to see one, just go ahead and raise your hand and um, one of the elders or ushers will make sure you get it. You know, once again, what a beautiful word. And, and we see it happening. We see the world changing, you know, pastor shared about the, the pastor in Canada and, and um, the times are here, right? The times are now. You know, I love it when Paul says to Timothy in, um, in verse 12, he starts out by saying yes. Like to answer your question, Timothy, yes. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's very clear, right? Um, we come today, if you're a believer in Christ, to share in communion. If you're not a believer, then I encourage you not to partake today. Um, certainly, if you want to talk about it, then find a pastor afterwards. Um, Jesus came to suffer. He came to be persecuted. That was evident, right? Since, since Genesis 3. Since, the, since the, the beginning of sin. You know, in Hebrews, it tells us that we have a high priest that's tempted as we are. He knows what we go through. He knows it personally. You know, in John... He tells us that the world hated him, so the world will hate us. And, and Paul, here in Timothy, tells, tells us that, um, you know, we will suffer persecution. But it's so important as we come together today to know that this was the purpose, that this is why Jesus came to suffer for each and every one of us and to suffer for us collectively, to bear that burden to be poured out on the cross, to be the way. Not only to provide the way, but to be the way. And there is one and only way, and it is him. And as we prepare to partake today, we want to remember that that, 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 was his, that was his goal, right? That was his purpose. One that came heavy to him as we read about him in the garden, you know, asking his father to, to please take the cup from him. But nonetheless, he wanted his father's will to be done. And that should be true in our lives as well. And to be prayed up, to be ready to go, 
to prepare for suffering, just as Jesus did. We will never know the suffering that he had, but he certainly knows the suffering that we have. And to be ever grateful for that and to never forget, to never ever forget that he loved us that much. You know, it's, it, it, always, it, always, it always touches my heart to know, you know, he came to die for my sin. But as, as we go through this every month in the beginning, like he died for all of us collectively. And it's unimaginable. It's, it's, it's unfathomable to me. And ever so grateful. And Paul writing to the, the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, he writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He was promised to come, and he came, and he suffered and died. And there's a promise that he's coming back. And God's promises are true. So he asks us to do this um, until he comes. So I'm going to ask us now just to take a short time of silence and just prepare our hearts um, whatever that looks like, forgiveness or sin or what, however that looks in your life. But we'll just take a few seconds here and, and um, prepare our hearts before we partake. Let's, let's please partake together. Mm. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. That the veil was torn, Lord, that we could approach you at any time, at any place. And you have built that bridge, Lord, that um, 
we can commune with you and one day be with you for eternity. We are ever so grateful. And Lord, sometimes I don't think saying thank you is enough. So please search us, God, and, and know our gratitude. Know how deeply we love you and how, how thankful we are to be loved by you. Jesus, thank you is all I have. So that's what I, that's what I lay on the altar, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll worship and then we'll close out in prayer. Praise you, God. Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you so much for that, Lord. Um, as we need you. Every, every hour we need you. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can come together. We thank you for uh, the, the pitter-patter of feet upstairs. We just thank you, God, um, as we begin a new season, a new month. Um, we look, to, we look to you, God, to guide us through it. Um, we praise you, Lord, and we ask that you be with us for the rest of the day and whatever our day has in store. You guide us and guard us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We love you guys.